All right. Well, it's we've already had so much going on this morning. God has been doing a lot through worship, through exhortation, through prayer ministry, which is great. So I don't want to belabor anything, but I do feel like uh, God has placed some things on my heart that I want to share, and I'm actually really excited to share them. But I will also try to abbreviate them so that we get out of here in a reasonable three to four hours, which is after the lunch rush anyway. That was the Lord confirming his word through signs and wonders. Um, and we're just going to take some time. Is it me? Is it, is it these hips? They don't lie. Something, something is going on. Check one, two. Is it? Hello? Perhaps I should just hold it. I'm not sure. Okay. We shall proceed with caution. Which is actually probably a good thing for what we're talking about. I'm going to hew fairly close to my notes so that I don't commit any heresy this morning. In case any of you are heresy hunters. We're going we're gonna to dig into some ideas and some thoughts and some truths about Jesus. But if you are, oh, thank you, Dad. If you lose the plot this morning, I'll give you the answer right from the beginning. The answer is Jesus, right? The answer is always Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Did anyone remember this song? For the world today. I don't know why you can only sing this song in like a real kind of country, like Heartland style. Above him there's no other. Jesus is the way. So we're going to talk about Jesus. And it's going to be theological, which I know maybe is a bit intimidating for some or maybe not, maybe not something that we often do. But I feel like it's important for us to really unpack the theology of who Jesus is and understand him in perhaps a little bit of a richer way. So, like I said, if you're not tracking, just remember that the answer is Jesus. But if you are tracking or if you want to dive in further, I would encourage you to maybe listen to the podcast. Like I said, I'm going to try to stick to my notes. And hopefully we'll be able to, to discuss and to dive into the richness of Christ. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our text today is from 1 Corinthians 1, and we're going to start at verse 17. So the context here is that Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians because he's been with them. He's established this church and almost right away goes off the rails. And if you read anything about the Corinthian church, you will realize after you read about the Corinthian church that uh, your church and this church do not have any problems in comparison with how messed up the Corinthian church was. Because <laughs> it was crazy. Like, if you've ever thought to yourself, like, oh, man, I just wish I could go to, like, a Bible Times church. Like, just one of the early churches. It's like, that would be great. That would be awesome. I would love to sit under the teaching of Paul and the other apostles. But, like, the Corinthian church, they had some troubles. And so this letter is written to address many of those. And the first thing Paul wants to address is he wants to address who actually has authority to minister and to lead because even though there are these huge messes, people are worshiping multiple spirits and a man is having a sexual relationship with his wife and his mother-in-law in public and he wants everyone to be okay with that. And people are showing up at communion getting drunk, like they're drinking enough to be drunk before communion starts and then there's not enough wine in the communion for the poor who come in later. It's, it's just a crazy church. It's, it's church gone wild, okay? And, and Paul, before he deals with any of that, he needs to deal with apostolic authority because he hasn't been there. And so he reaches out to them and he says, hey, I need to to give you the grounds for why I get to talk to you this way. Because I'm going to kind of take you to the woodshed. And uh, before I do that, I need to explain I have the right to do that. So there, some in the church are saying, well, I follow Apollos. And some are saying, I follow Peter. And some are saying, I follow Paul. And he first wants to bring them uh, to focus in on Christ. And really what we're talking about today is we're talking about Jesus and we're talking about the heart of the gospel. But everything we've been discussing leads to one major question, which is, who is Jesus? 
to us? And how do we find him? How do we discover the truth about Jesus, whether it's in the scriptures or in our lives today? And this is what Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize. Just for context, one of the debates was, you you could say, well, I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Paul, and then people were bragging about who baptized them, right? It was kind of like, uh, that the person that baptized you was like what you were the proudest of. And Paul's like, look, I didn't baptize really any of you, maybe one or two of you, but I'm so glad that I didn't baptize more, than you, more of you than that. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, through the foolishness of what we preach, to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So to know who God is, is so important because we can't walk with God and we can't grow in our faith, which was before we were known as Christians or little Christs, we were known as the way. We were people on a journey. We were not people who had arrived. We were people who were following God. And early Christians even related to the Exodus story and made it kind of their own. They said, we're, we're sojourners. We're exiles in this land. We haven't arrived, but we're looking for a heavenly city, a heavenly home. And so they were these people in transition. And not only were they in transition, but they no longer held to their ethnic creeds. They no longer held to their sexual or their gender identity. They no longer held to their class to whether they were rich or poor. They all came together and were united by Christ. But then the question is, well, who is Christ? Like, who is Jesus to us? Because if you look around the world for like 15 minutes, you discover that everybody's got an opinion about Jesus. And there's a whole bunch of different Jesuses. There's a scene in a comedy movie called Talladega Nights where they go to pray over their meal at supper time. And they get in a debate about what Jesus is. And the one guy says, and they're kind of from down south, he's like, well, I picture Jesus as like a muscular acrobat. The other guy's like, I picture Jesus as like a seven pound, eight ounce sweet baby Jesus just laying there in the manger, looking all cute. So I picture Jesus as the lead singer of a rock band. And I'll be at the front row going, yeah! And that's kind of how it is. Everyone's got an opinion about Jesus. To some people, Jesus is meek and mild. To other people, Jesus is righteous and angry, and he's going to come and judge sinners. And it seems like everybody's got an opinion about him, not even Christians, non-Christians, secularists, atheists. Everybody's got an opinion about Jesus, and because he's so gracious and accommodating, it feels like the concept of what truth is kind of becomes subjective, I have a truth, you have a truth, I've got an opinion, you've got an opinion. We might hash it out online a little bit, but for the most part, I get to do me, you get to do you, and that's how our modern age is established, okay? But as we continue on this journey, we were discovering two things that at first feel contradictory, but today hopefully we'll bring them into harmony. One is the universality of Christ. Jesus is in everything in some mysterious way. The Bible says he holds all things together through the word of his power. Paul said in him we live and move and have our being. And in him all things consist. But then there's this other side which is that we're dealing with the particularity of Christ. He's not just everywhere. He's revealed in one person, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and died and rose again. And so we as Christians have inherited a tradition, we've inherited a set of values, we've inherited a story, but we've also walked into experiences with God and with one another that reveal who Jesus is to us. Now, if you talk to a faithful Orthodox Muslim, they're going to give you a different definition of who Jesus is. 
Did you know that the Quran actually speaks higher of Jesus in some respects than it does of Muhammad? It says he was a prophet without sin. Many, Muslim, uh, many Muslims today are confounded by the conflicts between Muslims and Christians because they, they note that we do not realize how much respect they have for Jesus the prophet. And then if you talk to Orthodox Jewish people, they will tell you something very different about Jesus. And if you talk to Buddhists, you'll find out something very different about Jesus. Today, I would like to talk to you about what Christian Orthodoxy says about Jesus. And that is a tall order. I am not here speaking on behalf of all Christians everywhere. Like 10 minutes on the internet, we'll, we'll, you'll find someone who disagrees with me. But all I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to express to us, as we discover the universal love, the universal belonging that is released through the cross and resurrection of Christ, we also hold to the particularity of Christ, to the tradition that was handed down to us. And so then the question becomes, how do you find Jesus in the Bible? How do you find Jesus in relationships? And which Jesus are we talking about? Sometimes it gets so confusing that we feel like Pilate and we ask, what is truth? We don't even know. We live in an age where there's so much debate on everything that it's like we don't even share a same set of facts about climate change or vaccinations or politics or theology. It's like everybody gets to do their own thing and we lose any sort of objective reality. But we as believers in Jesus... As Christians, we believe that Jesus is objective reality. That the person of Jesus is truth embodied. Ephesians 4, 6 says, God is over all and through all and in all things. And Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, from God and through him and to him are, are, are all things. So God is everywhere leading everything into reconciliation with himself, yet God has revealed himself in Jesus, and God is present with me. Okay, I said we're going to get theological, right? Let's get theological, theological. Yeah, we have to sing through sermons like this because they're just a little bit heavy, okay? The mystical and historically exclusive union of divine and human natures are found in one hypostasis, the eternal logos, we talked about this, the logic, the essence of God, uniquely enfleshed and identifiable as the man, Jesus. When we say Jesus Christ, we know that Christ is not his last name, right? I know when some people swear, they swear, they say Jesus' name in vain and they use Christ like it's a last name, right? But that's not what the word Christ means. The word Christ means anointed one. It means he's unique, he's set apart, he's special in some way. And so when Paul talks about Christ, he's talking about what God is doing universally through the story of Jesus, but he's also celebrating what happened historically through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is the, the fusion of divinity and humanity. If Jesus is just divine, I can worship him, but I can't trust him or follow him. His example teaches me nothing. I can be saved one day, but I am not being saved right now. I can just hope for an exit ramp after death for believing in the right ideas about Jesus. In this model, truth is a principle and I am saved for having the right opinion. And only one idea is valid. There are many Christians who care far more about the divinity than the humanity of Jesus Christ. But if Jesus is just human, I can learn from his example, but I can't rely on his power or presence. Love and goodness are just abstract ideas I can't rely upon. God, the universe, whatever else you want to call it, might be out there, might not, might be good, might not. How could we know? Whatever happens to us after death is just a mystery because no one would have come back from the grave. And I, can only, I can't trust that I will be saved one day. I can only find salvation here and now through whatever spiritual practices are enlightening to me. 
In this model, truth is secret knowledge. And I only found salvation by living under the right practices. But this is the beauty of Jesus being the word made flesh. He is the logic and essence of God translated into a human life. This means we can understand him. We can know him and we can have a relationship with a person in a way that we can't have a relationship with the principle. So this is what actually unites us as followers of Jesus. I know this maybe feels heavy, so I'll try to sing a little bit later. But before I do that, I want to read these statements, and hopefully they'll make sense to you. We believe that by the Spirit, the Father has fully disclosed himself through Jesus, who is alive inside of us and in our relationships. Jesus is the only way to the Father, which is our true nature and our true family revealed through his life and through the relationship with God that he ushers us into. And all ways that lead to God must pass through Jesus. Let me say that again. Jesus is the only way to the Father, and all ways that lead to God must pass through Jesus. See, a lot of people, they'll say, Jesus is the way. And what they mean by that is the way to heaven. So what what they're essentially saying is... My opinions about Jesus are better than your opinions about Jesus. And you must agree with my opinions about Jesus in order to get to heaven. But that's not what Jesus teaches in the book of John. He doesn't say, I'm the way to heaven, although he is the way to heaven. Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. No man comes to the Father but through me. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that in my life, in my example, in how I love God and in how I love my disciples, I reveal what God is really like. Everyone else is wondering. Everyone else is questioning. Everyone else has got an opinion. But I have the truth embodied as a person. I reveal what God is really like. What is he really like? He's a father. And the only way to know him as a father is not to have an opinion that he's a father. The only way to know him as a father is to know me. Because when you know me and when you experience my love... And when you experience my fellowship, you will know what the Father is really like. Everyone has an opinion about God, but everyone, I mean everyone, has an opinion about fathers. Thank God that when he called himself Father, he didn't leave it up to you and I to define what a father is. And most of people's opinions about God, most of the things they claim to believe are actually just reflections of their relationship with their earthly father made spiritualized. I don't believe God exists. God's never been there for me. God walked out when I was seven. Right? Do you understand the subtext? (laughs) The subtext is we often project onto God our human relationships. And Jesus comes as the word made flesh, as truth in a person to say God is a father, but not the way you know a father, because your father is human, flawed, broken. My father is perfectly loving, perfectly kind, and perfectly good. Amen. My, mine's also pretty good. <laughs> so what that means is, if God really is this kind of father, and if we can know him, not just have right opinions about him, but if we can actually know him as our father. See, this is something that I say to my kids. I say, you actually have a dad who's more your dad than I am. I had a hand in making you, but your heavenly father formed you out of nothing. He dreamed you up in his heart and he brought you into existence. He has more right to call you his, your, he has more right to call you his child than I do. And so this is the good news that Jesus brings us into. Through his life, through his personhood, he reveals what God is really like. And it's not to bring us into the right opinion. It's to bring us into the right experience of knowing God. So what this means, that it, what this means is that every way to God 
Every person who knows the one true God knows the one true God through Jesus. Sometimes in an open sense and sometimes in a hidden sense. I've told this before, but it's a great example that's very accessible to us so that I don't offend anyone accidentally. When I was in the Middle East, I met with many Muslims who, they, we call them MBBs, Muslim-born believers. They still go to the mosque, they still claim to be Muslim, but they follow the man in white who appears in their dreams. He says, I am Isa, and you can follow me. You can trust me. Now, part of the Muslim tenets of faith, and I don't mean to misrepresent them because I am not qualified to say everything they believe. <laughs> But one of the things that they do believe that I think is fair to say is that God could never be made flesh because he's too holy, he's too distant, he's too far away. He can only be revealed through the text and his, the text of the Quran and his servant Muhammad. Okay? So when Isa appears to them, the man in white, he doesn't say, you better believe in me or you're going to hell. He just says, follow me. Because again, if Jesus' goal is to bring us into relationship with the Father, then Jesus is okay with revealing himself in hidden, subtle ways that bring people to the relationship with God that they long for before they have the right opinions about him. And we even see this in the Bible. The disciples come to Jesus. When he says, I am the way, Thomas says, show us the way and it'll be enough for us. Jesus, just give us the right theology. Give us the right opinions about God. And Jesus says, I've been with you this whole time and you don't know yet. <laughs> Jesus has to convince them that they already know the Father because of how he's loved them. Jesus is the word of God, the only message consistent with God's nature, and all other messages that are consistent with the person and nature of Jesus reveal the character of God to us. There are many great men and women through history that have done things that reveal the heart and the nature of God because what they said, what they taught, and how they acted were consistent with the person of Jesus regardless of whether or not they claimed to be Christians. This is how the word of God, the logic of God, is being revealed in a mystery to those who are in darkness, to those who are perishing, to those who are suffering under the way the world presently is. We know his name, we have seen his face, but he is still in everything, everywhere, Revealing what God is really like. Wow. So, can, can I give you an example of how this works? This is why, and I'm not offended if you do it differently, okay? This is why I don't call the Bible the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God, but the Word of God is specifically a title, like capital W, Word of God, is specifically a title that the Bible reserves for Jesus. The Bible is divinely inspired. The Bible is amazing. I love the Bible. The Bible stands above all other books to me. It's God-breathed. And all of it is good, okay? All of it is useful for teaching, correction, edification, rebuke. But it's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we do sometimes is we take the Bible and we say, what's well, the Word of God? When in reality, Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus reveals what God is like. And the Bible sets the context for us to have a revelation of who Jesus is. So you can read the Bible in a way that leads you away from the image and likeness of God. I've been reading through the Old Testament. Not everything in there reveals Jesus right away. <laughs> I don't know if you've been reading your Bible lately. Here's the thing, because the whole Bible is useful, some people, they go, well, because I love Jesus and because I want Jesus to be my image of God, I'm just going to stop reading my Bible. Like, they just chuck it out the window. And I'm like, no, 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 the whole thing reveals Jesus, but in the right way. A guy named Chris Green, a theologian, says, the Bible's like a multivocal choir. It's like a choir with 66 voices. And if you show up during worship practice, the choir doesn't sound very good. 
And if you pick just one voice out and you listen to just one voice, you're going to hear a crazy tune. But if you let them get warmed up and if you let them start harmonizing with one another, you'll, you'll discover they're actually singing the same song. Can I give you an example of this? Can, can we just get into the nitty gritty a little bit? Okay. Please be gracious to me. You're allowed to disagree with me, with me if you want, but please be gracious to me, okay? Moses and God are up on the mountain. God is literally writing the commandments that he's going to give to his people for the covenant on stone with his hand. It's like the coolest thing ever, okay? Moses has been away from the people for like 20 minutes. Not really, but basically 20 minutes. It's been maybe 30 days, okay? And in that amount of time, they are so immature that they decide to make a golden calf to represent the God that led them out of Egypt. Okay? So Moses is on his way down, and he sees this golden calf. And they're like, uh... He goes to Aaron, his brother, his trusted friend. He says, what's going on? Aaron's like, well, they just started giving their jewelry, and we threw it in the fire, and this calf came out. Millions of people are bowing to a baby cow. Think about this. And they think that this is Yahweh. Okay? Moses is so angry, he takes the tablets that God wrote on with his very hand, and he smashes them over his knee, which probably broke his knee. He goes back up to the mountain, and he's angry this time. And then not only is he angry, but God is supposedly angry. And God says, I am going to murder every single one of them and start again with you. We're reading the Bible here. Moses said, God, please forgive them. If you kill them, all the other nations are going to see that you are vindictive. And they're going to see that you didn't fulfill your promise to Abraham. So you need to forgive them in order for your word to be true. And God goes, I never thought about it like that, Moses. Let me backpedal on the murder thing. I won't kill all of them. I will kill some of them. And then I would like you to kill some more. Moses goes, don't worry, God. I'm, I got you. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Moses goes down the mountain. He burns the calf till it's ash. He makes all the people eat it. And many of them get sick and die. Then he says, those who are on the Lord's side, come to me. And a whole bunch of people come to his side. <laughs> we did that calf worshiping thing, but we thought it was wrong. So now we're going to come with you, Moses. And he grabs them all and he says, now I want you to run through the camp and kill your brothers and your cousins and your sisters and your mothers and your wives. Everyone who wasn't with the Lord, come and kill them. And so they run through the camp with the sword and they kill a whole bunch of people. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. So you're reading the Bible, you're like, where's Christ in this? God is apparently vindictive, and Moses is more merciful than God. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Moses is more merciful than God? How does that work? How could Moses be more merciful than God? That doesn't make sense. Is God playing a trick on Moses? Right now, I'm on a, a tightrope over Niagara. <laughs> And I'm, all of you were looking at me like, what is he going to do next? And I'm going to sing. No. One of the ways I've discovered Christ in the Old Testament, it's not the only way, but one of the ways I've discovered Christ in the Old Testament, is to realize that God very graciously accommodates what we think about him. He steps into our world, into our fallen brokenness, and he leads us out of darkness into light. Moses wants to see God's essence. God says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the, of the rock, and all of my goodness is going to pass you by. What happens as Moses beholds the glory of God? He becomes what he beholds. The Israelites don't have a Bible. They don't have any former revelation of God. They were just a bunch of slaves who followed Moses. Moses is a type of savior to the Israelites. Do you know who revealed what God is like to the Israelites? It wasn't what Moses said about God when he came down angry from the mountain. It was Moses embodying mercy. He'd seen God's goodness and he said, I know you can forgive them. So who reveals God's nature as found in Christ in the story? The words of Yahweh or the acts of Moses? 
So God, all along, he's accommodating what we think about him, and he's letting us say all sorts of things about what he's like. But all along the way, he's revealing himself experientially, relationally, and as we see him, we become like him, and our bad opinions change. So Moses comes down angry and vindictive because he thinks God is more angry and vindictive than he is. Moses gets a whole bunch of self-righteous zealots together, and they murder their friends and cousins and brothers. Moses knows God by saying, he who is on the Lord's side, come to me. What happens in the very next book? Joshua, the guy who followed Moses, the guy who stayed at the tent of meeting, the guy who also witnessed the glory of God, he's now in charge. And when the angel comes to him, Joshua says, are you on our side or are you against us? Where did he get that idea of sides from? He got it from Moses. Are you on our side or are you on the other side? You know what the angel says? No. God started with Moses by revealing a goodness that made Moses merciful. And then God continued with Joshua by declaring that God does not take sides. And you watch along the story of the scripture, the nature of Christ is revealed, not just from what people say about God, but by the people who encounter him have a change of heart have a change of perspective, and they become like a little incarnation. They become a little word made flesh. Not a capital W word made flesh. Not the only begotten son of God, but they see him. Moses saw him in the cleft of the rock, and he became like him. This was a huge diversion, and I'm so sorry. But I got halfway across the falls, and I thought, if I stop now, I'll die, and then nobody will know what the heck I was saying. So how do we know when we have the right word? Because I've heard people say some terrible things about Jesus. And I've heard people say some terrible things on behalf of Jesus. Inside my faith and outside my faith. And I want to know the real Jesus. I want to know what God is really like. I don't want to make him up. I don't want to make him up in my own image. I don't want to make him merciful if he's not merciful. I don't want to make him angry and vindictive if he's not angry and vindictive. I just don't want to make God in my own image. I want to be shaped by his image. (laughs) This is Paul's brilliant move in our passage today. Paul says that the power of God is found in his self-emptying, co-suffering love. Whenever you see self-emptying, co-suffering love, you find Jesus. Believing in the crucifixion is not just about believing in an event. We are not saved by believing the right facts about history. I believe that Napoleon invaded Russia in such and such a year, and I believe that Martin Luther King stood and said, I have a dream, and I believe that such and such a thing happened on Tuesday, and I believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again in AD 33. It's not your opinion about history that saves you. Believing in the crucifixion is about understanding what this event reveals about God. The crucifixion is the full expression of God revealed to us. Whenever someone makes a claim about God or Jesus, measure it against the crucifixion because the crucifixion is both the wisdom and the power of God. Jesus dying on the cross is the power of God on display. This might offend you because it often offends me. I would like the power of God not to be revealed through God dying on a tree as a common criminal, naked, hanging there helpless. That doesn't look like power to me. Power looks like Zeus with lightning bolts. It looks like Thor spinning his hammer super fast and flying around the movie theater. It does not look like a simple Galilean carpenter being crucified among with many other thousands of maybe innocent, maybe guilty people that the Romans decided to put to death that month. Paul doesn't say, this will lead to the power of God. He says, this is the power of God on display. And Jesus, for all of his brilliance, for his rhetorical flourish, for his wise rabbinical teaching, never wrote a book The only thing he ever wrote was in the sand and the dust blew it away. 
So for all of his wisdom, for all of his teaching, the only thing that remains of the wisdom of God is revealed through the cross to his disciples who carried his story out into the world. The Jews stumbled over Jesus' divinity. They said he made himself equal to God by calling God his father. They wanted a political revolution, not a relational revolution. To be honest with you, some Christians are, are stumbling the way the Jews did. They want Jesus to be a political revolutionary because they don't actually believe the cross displays the power of God. They believe that their opinions about the cross give them access to a God who's going to change his tune eventually. So they want to make sure that the wrong people are out and the right people are in, and they want to make sure that their nation is the most Christian it can possibly be. They think they're honoring God by creating laws and institutions that somehow shut out the bad and keep in the good. When God reveals his power, not by conquering Caesar, not by defeating bad people, but by dying at their hands. And that sucks for many of us because we actually don't want to suffer. We are willing to be loving until it costs us. And then once it starts costing us, we wish we could come down off the cross that other people are putting us on. The Greeks stumbled over the foolishness of his humanity. The logos made flesh. They wanted reason and principle, not embodiment. The Greeks were the classic philosophers. What is true, what is beautiful, what is good, it will be above the human, the fleshly. The idea that God would come and in his wisdom take on human flesh and then die didn't make sense to them. They thought that it was foolish he would subject himself to our disorder. The God of gods must be above the fray what good does it serve for truth, goodness, and beauty to die at the hands of immoral people? But the power of God is the crucifixion. It's losing rather than winning through coercion. God reveals that true love would rather die than control you. See, not only do people have a lot of opinions about God, and not only do people have a lot of opinions about Jesus, they also have a lot of opinions about love. Do you want to know what true love is revealed to be to us as Christians, as those who believe in Jesus? It's the cross. God would rather die at our hands than control us. He would rather descend into our hell and join us there then send us there for being against him. Can I, can I give you some examples? Because I feel like this is so conceptual that it might feel less practical. I'm sitting in a sauna with an old man and we're wearing almost nothing. We're both pretty much naked. Hanging out in the sauna, just sweating together. And we're talking and I said... I said, whoa, I don't, know, I don't understand why people do this. It's kind of like practice for hell. Sitting here suffering, sweating, baking ourselves. And he laughed and he goes, yeah. He's like, it does kind of feel like that. I don't know why people enjoy this. He's like, but you know what? I don't even know why I'm here. He said, I've been a steam engineer for the past 30 years. I should be sick of this by now. I was like, yeah, what are you doing here? And he's like, yeah, maybe I, am, maybe I am practicing for going to hell. And I was like, oh, I was just kidding with you. Like, I'm just joking. And then he said something. To, here, here's the example, okay? I'm trying to show you how Christ is exclusively who God is, but yet he's revealing himself everywhere. He said to me this. He said, but maybe it's okay that I'm practicing for hell because I'm pretty sure my brother's there and I'd like to go and give him company. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, my brother lived a very wild and promiscuous life. He said he was very broken. He said he couldn't get off the bottle. He drank himself to death pretty much. He ruined his marriages. He's like, if anyone is going to hell, it's probably my brother. He said, but I loved him. And if he's down there, I want him to not be alone.
When Christ hangs upon the cross and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, Orthodox faith teaches us that on Saturday he descended into hell. He joined us in our brokenness. God said, if you're going to hell, I will go to hell too. See, this is what all of this means. I know it sounds so complicated, but it's very simple. It means that Christ in you is the hope of glory, not Christ in history. We don't just teach a historical event. We manifest a living reality. We don't just live out of principles. We know a person. Second, we don't hunt for spiritual truths in secret, in the dark. We know his name. We've seen his face. Paul says, we are the ones with unveiled faces beholding his glory. If Moses saw a type of glory, how much more do we, seeing Christ for who he is, know what God is really like and get to walk in relationship with him? What does that mean? It means that any secret wisdom which makes spirituality about what you must do or believe in order to have a breakthrough is eventually antichrist in nature. Let me say that again. Any spiritual idea that makes it eventually about what you must do in order to have a breakthrough inevitably will become antichrist in nature. We just need three keys, four truths, five steps. If you do this practice or that practice, if you believe this thing or that idea, eventually you'll find the secret knowledge that will lead to your enlightenment and breakthrough. Orthodox Christianity believes that Christ embodies the love and the grace and the mercy and the wisdom and the power of God toward us. And it's free And it's given unequivocally to all of humanity. So this includes televangelists trying to sell you anointing oil. This includes self-help books like The Secret. This includes oils and crystals and yoga and whatever else you want to do. It may, not all of it, but some of it may have some tangential benefit to your life, but not at the expense of switching your spirituality from being about what Christ has done for you to what you can do for God. Because that road will always lead to death. Grace is the opposite of karma, and it works opposite to the secrets of our success. It even, can I, can I step on a couple toes? There are even my own, okay? Even something like the Enneagram. Has anyone heard of the Enneagram? I've never brought this up, but some, some people know what it is, some people don't. Or whatever, Myers-Briggs personality tests. There are like a thousand ways to improve yourself. It seems to be that today, in this day and age, it always starts with finding inspirational quotes on Instagram. Right? It's like, believe in the power of your dreams and you can succeed. Today is a something, something. And it's like, that may be encouraging to you. I love it. I'm not against it. But what I'm telling you is that there is a very subtle way inside the church and outside the church that you can make your spiritual life about what you must do in order to present yourself to God or to the divine. To try to improve yourself. And if, if it's anything, if it's Enneagram, if it's, if it's you need to be in your Bible praying and fasting and pressing in. I don't know how many times I heard as a young person, I got to press in, I got to press in. What does that mean? Christ is pressed into me. I woke up and discovered that the God of the universe made himself known as a person. And because I know his name and I see his face, he comes by his grace and transforms me. This is what grace is. It's what it reveals about God. That the cross, this this ugly, horrific death, was the power of God to transform my life. And without my permission, I almost biffed it there. It was almost my death. Without my permission, God interrupted my life and by a sovereign act of grace transformed me. And I just woke up to that reality. I didn't need three keys or seven steps. It wasn't the cross plus a prayer meeting. It wasn't the personality test that gave me the secrets to my inner chakra, whatever. It wasn't any of that. It was simply Christ interrupting me because he loves me. So can some of these things benefit our lives? Sure. But Christ is being revealed in the way love is moving through the universe. So it means that wherever you see this love moving through the universe, you see Christ. You see it in the pattern of creation. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it will not bear much fruit. Farmers are watching the gospel happen on their field the whole time. You say to yourself, um, excuse me, as a scientist, I must insist that the seed does not in fact die. It rather just trans- transfigures into 
guess what the secret is? Christ couldn't stay dead either. You understand what I'm saying? That's the secret. The, the secret is not some hidden knowledge. The secret is that Christ was put to death, but God cannot stay dead. It's a contradiction in terms. He's giving you the secret the whole time. The secret's not some hidden knowledge. The secret is, in my life, death and resurrection is your life, death and resurrection. This is why Jesus goes to every funeral and he's like, they're, they're not dead, they're sleeping. They're like, what are you talking about? It's like, actually, I made the universe. Like the whole thing is somehow mysteriously inside me right now. I alone get to decide who's living, who's dead. We talked about it already. Throughout scripture, the heroes of the faith are like little incarnations. They are, uh, uh, theologians will call them a prefiguring of Christ. And there's many of them, and we don't have time to study all that. Christ is revealed through martyrdom. I've talked to you about this many times, but whenever you see someone who is willing to die for their faith, you actually watch as the story of Christ is retold through them. One of the most powerful testimonies I've ever seen in the past 10 years of who Christ is was when the Coptic martyrs, Egyptian believers, men aged 18 to 27, were kidnapped by ISIS. And ISIS is just awful. They're just the worst. They took them to a beach and they executed them in 4K display. I've never watched the video I can't stand to do it. But they said, for the, for the people of the cross, this is our message. And they cut their heads off on camera. Every single one of them forgave their killers as they were being killed. And every single one of their 21 families said that they would forgive them. And one woman said, my only regret is that I'm not able to bring the man who killed my son to my house so that I can cook him supper. Wow. This is the wisdom and the power of God. Anywhere love loses. Anywhere forgiveness costs everything. This is what the power and the wisdom of God reveal. The nature of Jesus is the one and only way to understand what God is really like. And the nature of Jesus is most fully revealed through the crucifixion. What this means is that we follow and believe in a love that most of the time looks a lot like losing. It means that we get to be wronged and we get to be seen as wrong for the sake of loving and forgiving people who think what we believe in is foolish. Christians and non-Christians, those in the world those of the world. Everyone has a different opinion about what God is like, what Jesus is like, what love is like. I'm here to tell you the faith that we've inherited, the thing Paul says we cling to is the power and the wisdom of God revealed through the crucifixion. God was willing to step into our humanity as the fullness of divinity, die at our hands, and receive the full weight, the full consequence of our brokenness. He put it all to death within himself and he descended into our hell. And he spoke a word of forgiveness and peace. And what that means is as people of the cross, wherever love looks like losing, wherever forgiveness costs us everything, we see the nature of God being revealed. You know where I see the nature of God being revealed? I see it in moms who struggle through parenting young unruly children and I've heard so many moms say I feel like I lost my life for years as it was all about diapers and naps and I feel like I lost myself to raise my kids I'm rediscovering myself now that they're a little bit older I love them the whole time but I just don't know where those years went you know where they went they went to preaching the gospel because that's what the gospel is that's what Christ in you is how many of you have loved someone who hurt you? How many of you have loved someone who walked away from you? How many of you have been in relationship with someone who now resents you or misunderstands you? How many of you have felt uncomfortable with the fact that you associate with the Christianity that people say is unloving, unkind, judgmental? What I've discovered is that we actually live on the wrong side 
of culture, of relationships on purpose. (laughs) Because the world around us finds it a stumbling block and foolishness to really participate in this kind of love. And even we ourselves, we struggle with it. We don't like to lose. We don't like to lose the argument. Let alone our lives. But this is the way of the cross. The power and the wisdom of God are revealed in how Christ emptied himself for our sake. To reveal that, that love is really willing to die. For the sake of demonstrating the justice of God's forgiveness. So if someone's taking your money, if someone has hurt you and they got away with it, if someone has misunderstood you or misrepresented you, if you have sacrificed for something and you have not seen any reward from it, I'm here to tell you what the wisdom in this was what the power in this was. You were actually demonstrating the reality of Christ in your world. So take heart. (laughs) We know his name. We've seen his face. And we get to be the ones who represent him to the world around us. This is the power and the wisdom of God revealed to humanity. Jesus the Christ, fully human, fully divine, living inside of us, being repeated through our sacrifice.